Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Today's episode, Paradox of Intensity. How can you tell if you're practicing properly to improve? If you can't tell if you are practicing properly to improve. Can you travel back in time to kill your own grandfather? You can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. Right now, there aren't any specific visuals planned for this episode, but there may be some that come together later, and you can certainly find some of our other related content to other episodes posted there for people to check out. Let's get into today's episode. Can you travel back in time to kill your grandfather? Seems like a good place to start. There's a paradox here, and for people who don't usually think in terms of paradoxes, I think this is a good way to establish a common understanding of what we're referring to here when we're going to talk about the paradox of intensity and identifying, defining, and uh, uh, creating kind of an understanding of how you can utilize the recognition of that paradox of intensity is what this episode is going to build to by way of conclusion. Let's go back to the uh, concept of killing your grandfather. You can't travel back in time and kill your biological grandfather. Now, some people may have already figured this out, but let's talk through this, right? Reason through this problem. So if you travel back in time and kill your biological grandfather, then you won't exist and you won't exist to travel back in time. And this is sometimes used as a concept to sort of help articulate why the concept of, of time travel is not really possible. But I think there's other things, more practical ways that you can demonstrate that, such as the way in which you know space-time functions versus our social construction of the concept of time, et cetera, et cetera. So that is the idea of a paradox. Right, that in theory you should be able to travel back in time, right, and then kill your grandfather. But then, um, if you kill them, then you aren't able to travel back in time, right? And that's kind of the thing that people generally see with paradoxes is that it seems both sort of like true and untrue at the same time. And if you want a simpler example of paradox, this sentence is false. That's a paradox. So you can find lots of examples of these online if you get, you know, really into that as a concept. But some people, we start to identify these a lot. Uh, it's like learning a new word. Once it's introduced to your consciousness, you start to see it everywhere to the point where it seems like society has sort of agreed that now that you know it, you start to, they start to utilize it for your benefit. But I think it's really indicative of how when we don't know things, we basically are oblivious. And maybe that also relates to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that, that incompetent people perceive themselves to be highly competent and competent people perceive themselves to be incompetent. Because, you know, the uh, more you know, the more you 
realize that you don't know that you get a sense of the unknown increases sort of exponentially whereas your not the knowledge you can actually acquire increases maybe more arithmetically so the intensity paradox is our goal uh, in understanding but another paradox before we get to that sort of a for our first kind of exercise paradox here and there might you know, we're going to try to keep it under control here, right? Not try to overwhelm ourselves with too many paradoxes and get lost in the weeds. But a intermediary or starting paradox in exercise is that um, the training that makes you better makes you worse. Okay. And I have an example that's illustrative of that. And that's not something that has necessarily as simple a uh, logical explanation as the grandfather paradox, but and that's why sometimes recognizing these paradoxical elements are difficult. And the um, paradox of you, um, in order to get better, the training that makes you better you makes you worse, I think is a root cause for a lot of the kinds of strategies that people use in training that don't really work and don't really make sense, um, such as people pursuing the concept of speed work, I think the notion of speed work having particular utility is definitely very specific um, to running, but I think it exists in other sports with similar components. And I think that paradox of you're doing things that are making you better, but the evidence seems to suggest that you're getting worse and it, it causes that um, strategy to evolve. But if you recognize that paradox, then you start to see those strategies as difficult and inaccurate. I think one of the interesting pieces of um, sort of like social censorship or silencing effect that we see around uh, athletics is the idea of saying to people that, you know, training is simple. It's not that complicated. When somebody says it's not that complicated, they basically mean that it shouldn't exceed the level of what I as the subjective individual perceive to be common sense or automatic understanding. And I think that the goal of understandings is to make them feel simple, but that's a product of genuine competence versus this idea of my understandings are simple because I believe everything should be simple. And if I encounter anything that's complex or new, I'm going to avoid it, right? So that's kind of a distinction to be made there. And then, you know, the intensity paradox, which I think is related to that paradox of when I train to get better, I get worse. The training that makes me better makes me worse. Um, I think the intensity paradox is a matter of perceptual outcome um, as it has to do with beliefs around uh, dose effectiveness is determined through your perception of intensity. And, you know, it's it's a narrative that we see. I know I've made reference to this uh, before on another episode or two, but it's something that's prevalent in the current uh, rhetorical space around sports and athletics, which is, you know, I went to a really dark place on this one. Okay, great. You know, and we, we hear these things and they fit into our heroic narratives and our concepts about the, you know, benefits of the path of discipline, et cetera, et cetera. And it perpetuates that notion, right? That we can really perceive it by the extent to which we feel trashed. But you can get pretty tired without really getting tired. There's another paradox, 
Okay, and all of these things will be explained. And I think the structure and the nature of these paradoxes um, are really more so a product of a lack of understanding of what actually goes on with this stuff. I don't think it's like inherently like this vault of mysteries that, oh my goodness, this is riddled with paradox. Because if you understand a paradox, um, it kind of starts to like lose its specific sort of mystery uh, because you make sense of it. And once you make sense of it, it's like the paradox is there, but it no longer is difficult to understand. It no longer seems contradictory because you know, you've explored the evidence. And that's where the rational approach of, of positing possibilities and then looking to sort of verify through practice is, is really important, is really essential to all of this stuff. So let's explore this paradox of intensity through a specific question um, that will also tie uh, into some other concepts and I think will maybe fill in answers or suggest ideas that other episodes might have set the table for. The question is, how should I apply lactate threshold intensity to my training to improve my fitness? Because I think if we're going to really acknowledge what's a driving uh, reason why people consume information and efforts to try to articulate ideas about training is to try to make a determination directly, actionably, um, and like specifically in a like given session, what is the thing that I need to be doing? How should I structure a plan or organize? Now, I believe that we actually figure that out by talking about um, the way it really is, by not saying it should be simple, let's make it simple. I think that the market around athletic events and coaching for athletic events is such that it encourages the creation of answers that are consumable, not answers that are valuable. And that's where you have that, I think, an oversimplified dynamic of that market concept is to say that the customer is always right. And the consequence of saying the customer is always right is essentially that you're left with this situation where the sort of the people, if you will, are basically deciding what training is or isn't. And as a consequence of that, right, the incentive for the people dispensing these ideas is to, and I think this is, you know, the really the key thing to emphasize is to create what they'll consume, um, not to create the best possible, you know, performance strategy. I also think that, you know, the sort of contrast to this is having some sort of nationally federated program. And I think you see clearly differences around the world in terms of how different countries have sort of created cultures around um, sport and to what extent public funding is available to support that. And it might seem like, well, that's going to be better because then you don't have that, you know, market bias. You have just like people going in there, you know, and everything's evaluated based off of results. But that's also limited because... Um, that's going to be influenced by the institutional norm and then people who don't um, seem to be responding to the protocols that are in place will just sort of get voted off the island, right? And um, I think that Jillian Bennett is certainly an example of an athlete for whom, you know, if she was just put in that, uh, you know, that grinder of, you know, 
established practice and methodology, I think that, you know, that would have limited her ability to ultimately demonstrate what she's capable of doing in performance. And that's something that we think about and talk about a lot is how do we separate, you know, thinking about what's working um, for us in our training and racing strategizing and not giving into or not just sort of being pulled pulled down by the undertow that you know current of well this is just sort of the zeitgeist that's being driven and perpetuated um you know again that you know i went to a really dark place on this one mindset and i think you know those that dilemma right is what's making it difficult to do this and so that's my argument i guess in in a sense for why I don't think there are really simple answers to this. And I think that people who feel there are simple answers either have a really developed understanding to where their competence and understanding makes that landscape of ideas become simple, uh, or there are people who are, you know, selling you snake oil because their level of understanding is either constrained so much that they actually believe it's that simplistic, or they've sort of calculated that, you know, what's profitable for me is to create something that people are willing to consume. And a lot of people in Western culture obviously have this worship of the free market because they've been taught to perceive free markets as something that perpetuates uh, democracy. But, you know, free markets just perpetuate people trying to make money, right? And sometimes good things come out of the competition in those markets, and sometimes they don't. I mean, you know, national sports federations can lead to state-sponsored doping and individual uh, performers can, you know, do doping on their own. And, you know, it's not like there's this one system that's somehow creating this virtuous moral outcome. And I do think that there are some fundamentally true things, but, you know, and I've said this on other episodes, in order for two people to do the same thing, they need to actually be practicing in different ways, usually. Uh, it's unusual to find people who have similar overlap, and to do that, you have to find people who are kind of similar in ability. Um, I think, you know, I do a fair amount of training uh, with Jillian Bennett, and I think it's, you know, valuable for people who are trying to, you know, really work on this stuff over a long period of time um, to have people uh, that they can train with, but it also needs to be um, something that's sort of equivalent. Like, I can't train with my brother because he's too fast. And I think the last time I tried doing that, um, actually it might be 10 years ago this winter now, and maybe nine years, but, you know, I was like, I'm just going to go and I'm just going to do it. And um, every run was, it was insane. And I, you know, it's impressive the things that you can convince yourself to do uh, when you cultivate that kind of mindset. But I was like, nope, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to, you know, take my body's no for an answer. And I'm executing my... You know, and this is just, I'm just going to get in shape like this. And I got totally massively hurt. And then I just kept going out and doing it. And I guess that was sort of my last great experiment with, I am just going to go, try to go once more through this brick wall, you know, and I think that's when I really started to lose conviction, you know, whatever remained that that was really the key to improving on this stuff. So we can talk about um, the answer to this question. How should I apply uh, lactate threshold intensity in my training to improve my fitness um, through my uh, example here? Um, 
that I'm going to offer up in a moment. Um, and in so doing, uh, we're also going to get towards an understanding of how does the paradox of intensity really underpin our ability to figure out how to apply this. And essentially, I'm going to suggest that we have to think about intensity very differently uh, if we want to be able to use this kind of a training strategy effectively. So the context here is I ran a half marathon this morning, uh, the Millennium Running Shamrock Half in Manchester. Uh, it was like basically like 136 or 135, so like 715 pace. And I really felt the fatigue from the training that I've been doing. Like I was hungry when I woke up on Thursday, like my legs were exploding uh, just like walking up the stairs um, before I even got to my second LT session. Uh, you know, Friday, same thing. Just walking up even just a, a gradual slope was like, whoa, I can really feel this. And I think the stair thing, you know, or, or walking uphill is really a good measure of if you're fatigued uh, on a muscular level from training. Because, you know, I think when you're really fit and strong, then that should sort of go away. Um, and what's interesting about that is some people can be under significant, uh, you know, perceptual fatigue. And it's not just a matter of perception. It's it's tangible. It's real. It's a limiting level of fatigue, um, but can still go out and exhibit a, you know, higher level of performance um, because it's all sort of relative to our overall capacities. So, you know, and I usually don't feel hungry in the morning. I don't eat breakfast most of the time because I'm just not hungry. I might eat like peanut butter crackers, but that's just not, and it's not something I need to do. Um, the, I know some people think that uh, eating in the morning is something that's better for your metabolic, you know, health and helps you be skinnier. And, you know, actually, if you look at that, you know, there, that's sort of a, an urban myth as much as anything else. There's really no evidence that supports that. It seems to be the case that, you know, for, for most of us, if we're kind of in a good uh, mental health space anyway, you know, eating as we feel is pretty good, um, along with like, uh, you know, hydration, right? Drinking as we feel seems to work pretty well. Um, I think the food issue, you can go crazy on that stuff, but I think it has to more to do with like uh, the caloric density of what you're selecting and how that gets to feeling filled and, you know, to what extent uh, you can kind of manage your sugar addiction. I think basically everybody is sugar addicted. If you don't believe me, uh, try cutting everything with carbohydrates and see how long you can go. <laughs> don't starve yourself, you know, eat something else instead. But, you know, I think you'll find that that urgency to eat that stuff will become really strong. And it's because we're constantly dosing ourselves, uh, microdosing at minimum, microdosing ourselves with carbs that we don't, it's easy to think that, oh, you know, I'm not addicted to that. But, you know, essentially you're left with this reality that Oreos are like as addictive as cocaine, potentially, maybe more so. So fatigue is really, you know, present, evident, you know, it's a real limiting factor. Um, and I was also hungry when the race started, which is also another problem I don't usually have. You know, most races, even if they start as late as like 10, uh, like I just don't eat anything and I don't need to and it's not a problem. Um, but I felt hungry when the race started and I kind of had this lethargy where I like didn't even want to reach into my pocket and bother taking out uh, the maple syrup that I had. And I had last done this race two years ago, I think, and they had actually had 
a bunch of untaps out on the table. So in my head, you know, I just, of course, assumed that, well, whatever, I'll just go by a table and then I can just grab something. But I think that lethargy and like, oh, my God, if you can't even, you know, reach into your pocket to take out, you know, maple syrup, you know, then I think like that's saying something about your energy level, right? So if you can't do that, motivate yourself to do that, you know, it's probably not, uh, you're not probably not really in like a really high uh, performance state. You're not probably not going to show uh, your best possible result. So, I you know, this is also a time of year where I start changing the volume of what I do because of the weather. And uh, the changes with the bike, I switched to working out uh, outside, you know, weather permitting and sort of over the next couple of weeks that transitions to basically doing that, you know, all outdoor riding. I might experiment this year with using the trainer to do LT workouts, but I think that's really going to ultimately depend on whether or not it's too warm um, indoors to try to do the workouts well, because if they're just, if it's just too hot, that's not, I mean, to me, it's at a certain point, it's not worth it because I am not a, uh, for-profit athletic performer. I'm a for-enjoyment athletic performer. Um, so I'm not going to torture myself beyond a certain extent. Although some people might say that I already torture myself a ridiculous amount in the pursuit of this stuff. So right, I suppose we cultivate our own norms around what is and isn't challenging. But that switch goes from 60 minutes to two to three hours. So Tuesday, I LT'd uh, in the AM and running session and then did a 50 mile ride in the afternoon where I normalized LT power the whole the whole ride which was about like a two hour and and 50 minute ish ride so pretty close to three hours Uh, and I got surprisingly hungry doing that too and I usually never get hungry on the bike Um, but I like was definitely I only brought 75 grams of carbs and I took all of them and I I was still like basically trying to distance my mind from how hungry I was feeling and not like let that overwhelm me. But I think that suggests some interesting things about the level of stress and therefore the level of intensity that's happening uh, in the training. And I think doing this half marathon, to be fair, was just like probably a bad idea. You know, I was happily finishing my session on Thursday. Thursday, I also did double LT. I did LT run, and then I did uh, LT on the bike, this time inside because it was pretty cold. And then I went to sign up afterwards, and I realized that the half marathon was going to be on Saturday and not Sunday, and then I realized I was screwed. I had sort of thought, well, you know, I'll finish this on my that I'd scheduled for myself, and then I got two days where I can go pretty easy and I'll be good. And um, once I saw that it was like basically the next day for all intents and purposes, I was, I realized I was just screwed. Um, And what's interesting though, is that when I went out to do the run, um, I frankly wouldn't call it a race because I think I would be misrepresenting my level of effort. And I'll explain more about that. Um, But what was interesting about the run is it felt very slow the whole way. Um, You know, very much you know, that kind of holding back, uh, feeling I didn't, you know, like, and it was clear though. I also couldn't, you know, even consider trying to, you know, push the pace or try to feel like I was charging. And I don't know what happened to heart rate the last five miles because the strap was cutting into my skin. So I just ripped it off. 
Um, but it was in the 170s for the first eight miles until I took the strap off, um, which is definitely probably about my lactate threshold intensity for running, approximately, right? It's kind of hard to use heart rate to get too specific with that. Um, but like when I did the 50K gravel run race, Death March in Nebraska in August, you know, total out of shape train wreck run. Um, my heart rate was un- under under 170 for about 23 and a half miles. And it was basically after that point um, that, you know, it started going up um, into the 170s and the 180s. And that's when I really felt I was sort of on the breaking point of conversational capacity. We're like, I could talk, but like, I didn't want to. And I think a part of that may have had to do with like, you know, just total level of fatigue and really the rest of the way in on that I you know had a period where I started to get up towards 190 but then you know ended up sort of settling around 175 to 180 um and you know and I I think that was at that duration of work because overall that ended up taking four hours and (laughs) 49 minutes of running uh you know on the dirt roads which like adds an additional level of fatigue and you know slows you down a little bit too, therefore extending the duration of the work. Um, I think that like you kind of realize, okay, you can sort of get up to that point, um, but then like it's hard to really go over that uh, either for long periods of time or unless like you have a reduced level of fatigue. And so, in the context though of this half marathon. Um, I couldn't push into that state of, you know, battling the growing muscular fatigue. And that 50K, for example, you know, even though it was really long and the heart rate was, you know, rising and I was starting to feel worse, you know, I was able to keep running and I was able to handle that uh, increased perceived exertion and handle the muscles getting heavier and heavier and just keep persevering basically and, you know, putting out the work, putting out whatever that force was, keeping that basically steady, you know, to, you know, run, run, run. And I think when you're able to run through that or ride through or run or ride or swim or ski or skate or whatever, rollerblade, I don't know, right? But if you're able to get into that level of my legs are sort of protesting, but I can keep powering forward, I think that's when you can really say, okay, you know, I'm racing here. Um, and, and to me, that's what racing, the distinction between a race, uh, versus a run is in terms, at least in terms of like performance and what you're doing, because the ability to push deep or into the muscular fatigue state, and that's sort of seizing that bull by the horns and bend it to your will. Or another way I think about it is the distinction between, um, you know, riding a motorcycle versus like being tied to the back and just being dragged down the road, right? Where like you are in control of your effort versus your effort is just in control of you. And it sort of feels like your brain starts to slip further and further away and you kind of come out of alignment with what your body um, is trying to do. And, you know, sometimes it's like somebody like pulled the drain from the bathtub or you're in the shower, but like no water is coming out. Um, and I think if you can't sort of get into that state, then I, I think you haven't raced. 
And that doesn't make you a failure per se. I actually think it's kind of a useful thing to think about because if you can't get to that state of you know, grinding and overcoming and, and pushing through that level of fatigue, I think you need to recognize that like, oh, I'm not actually expressing my, my genuine fitness potential. And, you know, considering what I have done uh, leading like up to this, right? And I guess it depends how far back you want to say as a lead in. But if we just go from last Saturday to this Saturday, last Saturday I ran 20 miles, about eight minute pace. And then with the last maybe eight miles, maybe more, more like 7.45. And then I came back and I did um, 20 by two minutes threshold on the bike. And then I did um, two sets of 10 deadlift and squat at 2.45. And then on Tuesday, I did LT run. Then I did that like almost three hour ride at LT. Then Thursday, I did LT run and I did four by uh, 10 minutes um, at LT on the bike. And then the day before this, I just like sat on the trainer for 30 minutes and just sort of pretended to ride, <laughs> but put, put out like no power. Um, it was like sort of my best effort to try to like salvage what I thought was going to be pretty rough. But I think all of this like points to the issue of fatigue, right? And like those things weren't things that were not doable. And my reference point, you know, from my experience, and I think a lot of people have this experience, my reference point for, you know, what is training and what are workouts is something where you sort of achieve a state of failure. And the exhaustion is like complete, you know, but you're getting this like neurochemical like rush from doing something that was like really intense and dramatic if you're able to complete it well and you feel like you do if you have a good race. Um, but these sessions like don't feel like that. There are sessions that if you're fatigued, you can still do them. I mean, for me, the LT runs are have basically been for the most part four by two K and I would say not really that different from the pace that I did for this half marathon run uh, this morning. And I think, you know, the distinction there is that, you know, that's, you know, whatever, half an hour, 35 minutes of running, I guess closer to 35 to 36 minutes of running broken up with three, one minute and 45 second, you know, jogs in between the two kilometer segments versus doing, you know, this half run of just like getting and working at LT continuously for, you know, me, which a little over an hour and a half. So different level of demand. Um, but I think, you know, when we look at this concept of intensity, then we also need to look at the concept of training strategies, because there's going to be a relationship between training strategies and the level of intensity that we experience. And I think the old school way, I guess to simplify what I have just said, the old school way to evaluate what you're doing in your training is to be like, okay, right, you know, the, the more wrecked I am, that's how I know it was productive. And that's like a particular concept of fatigue. And I talked about the example of doing, um, you know, eight by 464 is basically the only activity of the day. And that can create a lot of fatigue, but you're basically only executing like eight minutes of work versus doing something where you're doing an hour of running with 35, 
36 minutes at, you know, this much higher level of energy demand, right? Because if you're going to go faster, you got to use more energy. Um, and, you know, LT is at a state where, like, yeah, it's supposed to be this sustainable sort of, we might traditionally say aerobic type feel, but like t- to go up to that level, you have to go way faster. So on the bike, I might cruise around at, you know, 170 watts maybe, right? If I'm just sort of out, you know, going along and not having any sense of urgency or need to produce any particular kind of power. Then if I do, uh, you know, on the bike, if I saw I'm going to do LT, right? So I might be adding, you know, I'll use the example from the other day, right? Now I'm normalizing 244. Well, to get that power, right, that comes from, right, energy, right? In a sense, I think if your body is sort of using its own form of kind of cellular combustion, combustion, if we want to use that as a metaphor, to create that, right? And that's consuming way more energy. Um, and if you work out for eight minutes and you crush... Uh, you know, eight 65-second intervals, you're going to basically not be able to do anything else. But if you work out for hours and hours, um, and if you're doing it, it's a different kind of way to get at intensity. So I think a lot of times, though, when we think about workouts, we're not thinking about them in terms of, like, what's the energy demand? So, like, one of the things that seems to have been popular is to do... um, four by 2k and and 1k stuff and i think that's where you know it's kind of what way is the wind blowing and when people see people post stuff on youtube or wherever they're seeing these examples and it's okay this is the the top individual male female athlete whatever and this is what they're doing well i need we need to emulate that right and to a certain extent they're emulating each other and that's the nash equilibrium behavior is if uh, Gustav and Christian are doing 4x2K workout, then everybody else needs to do 4x2K. But, you know, that's really no different than doing five times a mile, right? Which is sort of the imperial system, I would say, equivalent of that. You know, you're, the faster you go, right, the less and less additional time um, you're doing between that uh, five, those a mile repeat and a 2K repeat. You know, at my tempo, right, I'm only adding another minute and 45 seconds maybe. So it's really not a significant departure. And I think, you know, like I like to make changes in organizing this stuff because I think a part of it is playing mental games with yourself. You know, I used to switch to counting down uh, in the swim set, for example, when I uh, used to do swim team and do swim workouts, you know, it would be a bunch of reps and, you know, I would count up to halfway and then I would count down and it felt mentally easier. So for example, doing four bouts of work, you know, feels mentally, you know, more approachable at 530 in the morning than doing five bouts of work. Um, But if I was maybe working out on a track, maybe that would be different. I would be more, maybe I'd be psychologically more comfortable doing five times a mile, but they're both 8,000 meters. And if you're running them at the same tempo, you're basically accumulating the same number of strides you know, the same number of muscular contractions, you're, you're, then you're accumulating the same level of work. And the recovery is, is really just sort of like in theory, you know, you maybe wouldn't even maybe need that recovery, but it's just a way to kind of throttle um, and manage what you're doing. And, you know, if you're actively using a lactate meter, by the way, right, that's when you're maybe checking periodically. But, you know, the recovery is there is to enhance the quality of the practice. And so you kind of take as little rest as you need when you're working aerobically 
to make sure that you're enhancing the quality of the practice. Because, you know, if you go out and you're having an off day and you start deteriorating uh, in a five mile steady state type run, then, well, that's not really that great. Um, you use these rests and it can allow you to maintain the quality of the practice. That also means, though, that you can maintain the intensity of that practice. Whereas if you went out and you say, I'm just going to do 8,000 meters or five miles of continuous steady state running, I think what then you can recognize is like, okay, I'm because this is all in one thing, are you going to then maybe like pace yourself more accordingly? Um, but the ultimate goal is to kind of access that intensity. So you want to be manipulating sessions to do this. But like a lot of what we're seeing right now in terms of what's sort of on trend with workout design and workout strategies is just sort of this people doing metric system versions about this stuff. There's nothing magical about doing 1K versus doing 800. It's mostly the games that you're playing with yourself. If it's interesting to you to do 1Ks, you do 1Ks. Um, you know, if you don't feel good about yourself when you do half mile repeats, um, then you don't do them. But it could be the case that sometimes, you know, you might want to actually do half mile repeats because maybe stopping just that little bit shorter, that 200 meters shorter, maybe that enhances the practice, right? Um, and then we see in other sports that people don't use distance based intervals the way people do in running. So I'm going to do 10 minutes. Um, but in running, it's really embedded in the culture to really know the specific distance. Um, and we assign a huge value to velocity that really comes from the world of, you know, track and field in, you know, arenas um, where there is not sort of like a wind factor. Um, and obviously if it's track, it's level. So, and you like in cross country running, people obsessed with pace-based training, um, probably not really the best strategy because it doesn't actually have that sort of direct reflection um, because when you're you're racing, you know, at least for people who are trying to do workouts where it's like, okay, I need to do, you know, six by 800 and then sprint to 200 because I'm running the 5K. Well, if that's your strategy, like, you know, that's not actually specific to the race, right? Versus if you're saying, okay, we want to lact access lactate threshold. Well, you can do it on the road. You can do it on the track. You can do it on a trail. Uh, you know, we did a session once where we did 30 times um, 200 on like a path in the woods and we would do a rep and then you would go out 50 meters or you know whatever 100 meters excuse me turn around come back do that recovery um and then do another rep you know and it didn't really matter how fast it was in general it was like became its own standard relative to the to the workout right and it was a different environment made it kind of interesting and that's the kind of stuff we want to be thinking about with workouts because the time you spend working is more important than the distance. So when you're thinking about how do I use lactate threshold, it is about measuring and monitoring and setting um, an intensity um, based on this relationship to the mitochondrial infrastructure, but using that to then pace yourself. And then the workouts are designed based on, you know, how long can I hold this? But you also really only want to be working at that for a more moderate amount. Like it's actually very feasible to go out and do longer continuous efforts, especially if you're somebody who, unlike me, is more sort of stimulated and engaged by training workout sessions. Like it's much easier for me to go run, you know, seven to 715 pace right now if I pay 95 bucks 
and then another another ten bucks to you know run reg to go and like go to the starting line and do an event. It much more difficult for me to I would feel like I was sprinting the whole time, right? So I'm sort of taking advantage of that. Now whether that's money well spent is kind of a different issue, right? But um, like the specific time, right, is what we're accumulating, and then you use rest to right enhance the quality of the practice. Um, but more specifically than time, you know, we could really think about um, the body's physiological used upness is what's important. And you're looking to stress that, right? You know, um, but like, do you get to that point after three minutes or 30 minutes? Do you get to that point over a half a mile or three quarters of a mile, right? How are you using your intervals or your repetition structure to sort of get that? And you're accumulating that over the course of the workout. Some people design workouts where they are trying, they're trying to reach used upness within every single repetition. And then the worst form of that is when you're getting to that used up point before you even finish the rep. And I worked out with guys at Bates who their strategy, apart from running in the warm-up lane, which I thought was kind of like a little bit like obnoxious. <laughs> and it's very frustrating when, when you see people just, I mean, I guess the reality is in hindsight, it's like, I think it's more reflective of the issue with the pace, but you know, you be in your, your group and it's supposed to like enhance doing the, the workout and make it easier and like but people they would just be like well we better take it out really hard so we can hit the pace <laughs> you know, go out in 30 or 31 through 200 and then come back in 37 and it's like what are we really practicing here um, but I think for the coaches it was maybe hard to really notice that because there's a lot of stuff that's going on but who knows what the thought process was so the used upness thing doesn't really feel like that in a workout when you're using LT because LT is in a workout and that's one of the things that's going to is already established itself is there's there's perception that LT is a kind of a workout that people do that people are applying um, and that you do LT workouts really what LT is is it's a observation it's a way to sort of try to better conceptualize fitness and it's more useful in terms of like actually executing training than these arbitrary um, benchmarks like what's your PR for such and such a distance or what's your FTP FTP for cycling people listening to this you know the thousands and thousands of you you know clawing at the Spotify app to get these pearls of wisdom you know shelled out to you um, like FTP is a really stupid idea because it's a personal best, okay? It's, it's a personal best, and I don't care what training um, methodology people use. I mean, it's interesting to see those, but in terms of rationalization, your your training methodology vis-a-vis um, -vis the testing protocol to establish this is like not, does not somehow add greater, add greater validity to it because you're not taking like a core sample. Um, you're just taking this like surface level thing on this given day, right? So like I could take my half marathon today and I could be like, well, that was a race uh, because it, you know, it was a race event. And so that's all I can do. That's my PR. And so, you know, I'm regressing and my training isn't working, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I know there's some people who, you know, to be fair, right? Because unless you run, you have like some sort of standard of what's the minimum um, amount of watts somebody can do or <laughs> minimum velocity somebody can produce um, for them to possibly be able to engage in these kinds of conversations or discussions. 
But that kind of thinking, right, and the fact that some people might make their determination about what is and isn't worth pondering uh, is is linked to that. I think that's pretty um, cramping in terms of people's ability to make progress, get to their where we want to be. Um, like, so when we're using this, right, you know, the FTP is just a personal best, okay? And that's what you did that one time. Like, I have a, you know... 80 minute basically power file of me averaging 320 watts and and doing 350 basically for the last 20 25 minutes you know if i just took that and said okay let me input and determine a training plan on that basis that's going to be a total disaster and i think one of the issues with than trying to use something like LT. And this is, ultimately, I think LT is going to be maybe a, its own paradox. Because I think the paradox of lactate threshold is it's going to be, you know, it's a successful strategy that's going to be unsuccessful. Because I think the consumer, you know, the market isn't going to like it. And I think that the institutional approach to training um, is going to have a maybe greater probability of adapting it. But, you know, I think writ large, uh, in general, most people aren't going to really um, implement it. And the issue is, is it doesn't feel hard when you're doing it. In a successful LT workout, you should really walk away and feel good. And I've honestly been considering maybe just like cutting leg weights uh, from my program or cutting the weight back to like 150 pounds um, instead of, you know, 245 um, because, you know, that is just, I think, hampering um, my ability to get more out of my uh, LT stuff. But if I experiment with that, I will report back on a future episode. But what we're really talking about is that the training intensity isn't coming from workouts per se. Um, it's coming from the schedule. And constructing a schedule is more important than a workout. Um, and it also happens to be more complex. And as we kind of try to maybe just postulate slash establish early in this episode, um, if things aren't simple, uh, a lot of people just sort of like dismiss them, that their lack of simplicity um, or the complexity doesn't challenge people to understand um, and encourages people to uh, not engage with that. But like for my part, you know, as somebody who, you know, does coaching and talks to people about training and tries to give suggestions like I cannot I can't help an athlete if they won't be consistent you know um, if you're not consistent um, then you by definition can't follow a schedule and good training happens from schedules uh, not from workouts and good training is what leads to fitness improvement Um, and so therefore schedules are what lead to fitness improvement not workouts um, this idea of, well, people who do workouts and then just sort of do, you know, goodness knows what, whatever random then recovery time, right? You know, um, there's so much recovery trash out there that gets sold to people, right? And then you apply the recovery and that's where you get better. And then you do another workout and then you recover and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's like, that's what most people think. And, and they feel really good when they understand that. And it's very easy to understand um, and you know, the problem with reality is just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not still taking its effect. And in this case, the reality is, is that that's really not a super effective protocol. That's like something that, you know, you have that phenomena of if you take a couch potato and you take somebody who's does, you know, 
another couch potato and you have one of them stay a couch potato and the other person say hey do these dumbbell curls every day well the person with dumbbell curls is probably going to beat that person um in a five mile run okay it doesn't mean that dumbbell curls are the way to get good at running five miles and then you know the other aspect because it's worth completing this concept is if the athlete doesn't have a schedule and then they don't talk to you um you being like that coach or the collaborator you know i don't really like the term coach to be honest um but that collaborator right that person who's supposed to be like kind of like giving their input receiving your input you're sort of constructing this people who don't talk to you about it like you can't help those people either um you know that's a, a mindset shift that they have to make um but you know that's sort of like uh, you know, rugged individualism. <laughs> it's good to have the ability to function um, as an as an independent person. Uh, we're not arguing against that. But, and ironically, some of the people who, you know, are most um, struggle with that idea of, of that, I think also struggle with feeling, you know, codependency. <laughs> but that's a different issue. Um, there's a difference between being dependent on somebody and losing your autonomy versus being powered through your collaboration with somebody. Um, and, and people are social and they work with people. Um, that's the sort of essential structure of human society. And all this competitiveness are things that we've imposed through the sorts of things that we have like socially constructed. Um, but the sort of more fundamental human behavior is to like work with other people um, and get places. And it doesn't mean that working in groups, good, great things come from people working together, but that doesn't mean every time people work together, great things result. There's another paradox. So all a schedule, though, means um, if we're going to try to establish, I think, a concept of a schedule that you can apply to any um, sport, but certainly any endurance sport, all a schedule really means is managing frequency and intensity of your training and trying to keep them in a range of proximal development. And the fog of war, of training, um, you know, especially perpetuated by elite athlete narratives, confuses us. You know, this has always been true. There's always been a class of people um, who sort of sell themselves. Um, And that maybe sounds a little intense, right? Or, you know, like, we're not talking about prostitution, although you know, historically there's always been prostitution, but that's not the topic of this podcast. Um, there's always been people who sell themselves in terms of people like create, like what is valuable, their sort of source of economic wealth is like them and that people sort of consume them and their experiences and, you know, technologies and, and media change people's ability to do that. And we get confused because we look at the new version of the media and we said, well, this is like a new behavior. Um, and that's not true. Like the behaviors aren't new. Um, the like ways in which we express those behaviors and the sort of like subsequent interactive nature of those behaviors, um, is maybe sort of like a variation on that core behavioral theme. And, you know, for elite athletes, uh, that means like they are, their narratives are driven by the customer is also right. They're also being shaped by the market um, if you want to be a professional athlete, that is mark that has value, um, either because of entertainment or because of marketing. And unless your sport has a TV contract or you know significant gate fees in some sort of a enclosed arena or stadium, um, 
you know, you're really making your money as a like marketing figure. So you need people to pay attention to you. And, you know, if you have an endurance sport where you race infrequently, and kind of one of the interesting things about us uh, road cycling is that it really actually facilitates um, people, you know, having a lot of exposure through the teams, um, you know, having a bigger pool of athletes than they need to enter in every race. Although, you know, the following that, you know, kind of a schedule where you might race maybe 80 times, maybe more, maybe less, like that's still hard, right? And that's why doping has, I think, such a prevalence in cycling history because, you know, it's for a lot of people, like that's another issue, right? Is like you can probably do some of those races, but when you start adding them on, adding them on, adding them on to stay in that profession, just as, you know, a lot of American workers, you know, rely on caffeine, um, candy, um, soda, and uh, drinking at bars to sort of like keep them engaged in what they're doing, you know, athletes, right, are, are looking for their own aspect of that. There's a really good book about um, the history of doping in sport called Spitting in the Soup. If you're looking for something to read, I'd recommend checking that out. But the fog of war is, you know, where we see that I went to a really dark place on this one. Um, and it's just like the clickbait phenomena and clickbait, people talking about clickbait is so funny to me because people have always been, you know, trying to put things out that make people want to read it, you know, and you basic writing education in public school, well, you have to start with the hook. You got to hook the reader, right? You got to have a title that's interesting. You got to have a, right, something to sort of get people engaged with it. Um, and I think that it's a dilemma as an athlete of like, what can you do? So for me with this podcast, um, I'm not really viewing this as a financial vehicle for myself. So it liberates me to be more articulate um, in the manner that I want, um, because I'm not trying to prioritize cultivating consumption of what I'm saying. Um, I'm trying to prioritize developing the ideas. And then, you know, my thought process is, well, people who find it meaningful will be the people who engage with it. And the people who don't will be the people who do not. Right. And if that's a minority of people engage with it and find it genuinely valuable to me, that's a more that's fine. Right? That's a perfectly worthwhile outcome. It could be a more worthwhile outcome than trying to create something um, that has sort of a more artificial quality because it's about how can I bring, uh, you know, people in, um, you know, and, and I think that's that, you know, intellectual quandary, right? Of like, how do we explore ideas? Um, but does the exploration of the ideas then sort of mean that other people just won't explore them? Because again, um, if it's not simple for a lot of people, it's not worth listening to. And the fog of war around training like makes our ideas about fatigue misleading because you don't want to hear an athlete be like, oh yeah, I did that. Like it was pretty good. Like my legs were kind of a little bit heavy, but then like I felt fine. Right. We want to hear about, whoa, that was epic. That was crazy. Um, you know, there's a reason why 300 was a successful movie. Um, like that's what people are going to consume. So the athletes are ultimately incentivized in the market to, you know, create these things that are then defining these concepts of fatigue and what stuff should feel like as being really intense. Um, and you know, we've been sort of forced, I guess, to sort of apply this to ourselves because it's just so prevalent. 
I had uh, training for being a pure writing tutor my senior year, and I missed this hill workout um, on the Pineland Farm ski trails um, to go to that training. And then, for some reason, I guess Coach Fresh, Coach Freshidian decided it was really important that I also get that workout in. So then, you know, he got one of the vans and he drove with me out to the to Pineland Farms and you know to do the repeats. And I absolutely sucked. <laughs> you know, I and I'm sure I looked like a total bum, um, and like I just couldn't. I was so tired, and I had run I think 18 miles the day before, and you know that year I had gotten to the point over the summer where I could run about 17, 18 miles with 1,500 feet of climbing at about 650 pace in training. I just really feel great, um, and I'm nowhere close to that now. And, you know, I wonder, like, can I ever get back to doing that in training? But, you know, remembering how that felt and, and doing that stuff sort of becomes my standard for how I'll know if I'm if I personally am really fit again. Um, but, you know, went to do these, you know, hill repeats, um, which were on these Nordic trails. And it was sort of like a winding but constantly uphill, you know, one case. And, you know, I felt really bad because <laughs> I feel like, you know, OK, I, I'm coming out here to do this. The coach is like taking additional time, you know, out of his day and the other responsibilities has to take me, who's not going to be in the top seven, um, you know, in all probability to go and do this. And then I'm like bombing it. Right. Um, I'm not even running well for me. Um, and he didn't have anything, you know, negative to say. I think Coach Farashidian was not generally, but absolutely a very nice and great person to have as a coach, um, in a lot of different ways. Um, but like for me, like I wasn't navigating that fatigue. Um, and you know, by the end of that year, I was pretty sick (laughs) of, of running. Um, and I've obviously have stuck with it, but you know, you get pretty frustrated. Um, and when you think that you need to lean into the fatigue and, you know, I went from being able to run, you know, you'd think if I was running these hilly loops and 650 pace, you know, I should be able to run at least moderately well, uh, in, in cross country, but it wasn't the case. I couldn't break 30 minutes, you know, once again. And it, it's the fatigue that's the issue. Um, and that's hard to get people to understand that because we have this perception of, well, other people train that hard and then they go out and they run these races. Um, and I, I think that it's more complicated than that uh, where we don't necessarily understand, you know, that there's a lot of variation in terms of how much fatigue people are actually generating for themselves. And some people are walking away being like, well, I did a good workout. And other people like me have run to the point of absolute muscular failure, just failing to even hit those paces. Um, So then, like, what are the principles of effective practice? Um, I think there's two things that you can think about. Proximal development and then being within your proficiency level. Okay? So the belief that tolerance, right, because... And I can maybe even take it a step back from that. There is a belief that performance is about tolerance. And if we can't tolerate something, a level of work, then we can't perform. And you see that a lot um, in elite athlete narratives, not just now, but always. Um, you know, like the idea that intensive training means you reach failure um, quickly. You know, that Jim Ryan's story that, you know, we didn't think that the workout had begun until we basically were dying. But it's like easy for Jim Ryan to say, you know, he wasn't the the guy getting his 
you know, ass handed to him by the first high school runner to ever run under four minutes of the mile every time he went to practice. I want to know how those other guys felt. You know, what was it like for them? It's not like Coach Timmons, you know, produced 10 sub four minute milers. You know, and the sort of the rationalization, of course, is always, well, you know, they're not that talented. And that's where you can go that day. says, Maki and I, you can listen to those three episodes. We explore that concept of, you know, the illusion of talent um, is really a product of the training and the practice methods. So the belief that tolerance, right, the ability to tolerate work and therefore generate performance is proportional to exposure to stress, exposure to what needs to be tolerated uh, is wrong. And one of the ways we can validate this is because, like, uh, you can get to the point of fatigue where you basically can't race, you know, like today, right? For me, this was a training run, and really it's actually pretty good that I could go out and run 7.15 pace for an hour and a half, given the amount of fatigue that I've had. But because, you know, there was a start and a finish line, you know, it probably makes me look like, um, you know, nothing that is being discussed on this podcast is worth applying to your own kind of process, um, of how you're training. And people are obviously one of the cool things about talking about these ideas is that people are free to apply whatever they want to apply and, and reach their own conclusions. Um, and that's um, But if we think about training then, instead of being intensive, like this, what is the workout model? And then we say training is extensive. What is the schedule? Um, it's the distance that stops you, not the speed. And it's not just the distance in the workout or even the distance in the workout's if you're doing two sessions in a day, like I've been working on, um, it's overall. And, you know, right now for me, that means if I'm doing this training and I go to the starting line of a half marathon, I'm basically only going to be able to run LT and LT is going to be fairly slow because I have general levels of fatigue. And we'll have to see kind of what that looks like in the fall. But I mean, I'm not the only person (laughs) applying this kind of a concept, both in terms of people I know, but also just in general. So I don't think that we can really should be um, trying to validate this one way, frankly, or the other by just looking at and considering my experience. But I think another factor, kind of a psychological phenomena to, you know, why do we focus on the intensive versus the extensive approach, um, where it's like the amount of training I do per week, per month, per year or whatever, that's what really stops me, right? And then you can apply that down to the level of the workout of it's like, okay, the workout is, you know, over and I don't feel like whatever, but I'm going to feel that in aggregate. Like for me, I haven't been um, recording as much for the, the podcast actually, because I have been so exhausted from applying this, even though it's less intensive than the workout paradigms that I've applied in the past, it's actually way more tiring and especially you see that energy demand where I had on Saturday, I, I, I did that big day with the, the long run, the intervals and the weightlifting. And I went out Sunday to exercise and I was like bonking out of my mind. Um, and it was like crazy. And I think that that's a different way to think about fatigue, right? Is that, you know, and that's where um, it becomes difficult because you're not perceiving it in the workout but then it's certainly there later it's there in the sleeping it's there in the sense of like wow i'm getting really hungry in situations or contexts where i haven't gotten really hungry in the fat in the past um and so the psychological concept that's useful here is the dunning-kruger effect which i think essentially means 
that confidence is inversely related to competence. Okay, so the people who say, okay, well, it's very simple and, you know, they're totally, they know what's going on. Um, well, the Dunning-Kruger effect suggests that the more certain people are that they're right, the less likely it is that they're actually right. And that the less certain people are that they're right, uh, the more likely it is that they're right. And we, if you, in the context of being a student, right, being in school, um, I think a lot of people have experienced this sense of, man, you know, I worked really hard on this term paper um, and it sucks. And then you get a good grade and you're like, oh, this is a great paper. And you get like a B. <laughs> and it's like, what the heck, right? And I think what happens is in that context, right, when you are recognizing um, kind of like your shortcomings, then you're more likely to improve them. Um, but when your confidence is high, the only reason your confidence is high is because you can't perceive anything that would maybe rattle your cage in that regard. So what does this mean for training? What does this Dunning-Kruger effect mean for training? Um, I think it means you need to quit while you're ahead because if you aren't feeling certain um, like you've accomplished what you need to accomplish, like that's a good thing because that kind of uncertainty um, you know, it seems to be linked to a greater likelihood of competence. And I think this is valid because when you're actually doing the LT workouts, I'm not just speculating. When you do them, you finish and you're like, okay, right, in old money, I should be doing like another, at least another rep and should be at least, you know, sending it all out. Um, so then the paradox of intensity means that if you feel you accomplished something, you didn't. Um, you know, that's intensive versus extensive. The paradox is that um, the things that you think are productive aren't. And the paradox of intensity means also that, you know, the more intense something is, we're more likely to view it as good productive training. But the paradox is that's not productive training. And the lack of aerobic development, to use kind of a that classical term, you know, going back to Arthur Lydiard, who really, you know, like got on the soapbox about that. And, you know, and nonetheless, people still can't really engage with that because of like, you know, these other paradoxes, like the paradox of, you know, um, the training that makes you better makes you worse. And like, you know, going out and running that, you know, half marathon, even knowing all of this stuff, it still feels like, man, I suck <laughs> at running. You know, um, but then you have to think through that, right? And that's where you're also seeing that, you know, effect, right? If you're not confident that you know what you're doing, but that actually might relate to a higher level of competence because it means you're constantly questioning and interrogating. So this is the intensive then versus the extensive. With the extensive training, you can't verify in the moment, but your things like your chronic need for more sleep, and the sort of like fatigue the next day, like, you know, and I think the energy demand where you're going to find yourself like feeling like, wow, I am like under fueled. Um, and some people who maybe never have experienced being under fueled will be shocked by how like nasty that can be, you know, and I mean, I really, oh, maybe I should be, you know, pleased with myself for, um, you know, being able to still run, you know, LT for most of the way, although at the last couple miles, I just sort of like really ran out of gas and just was sort of like trying to like float in, you know, to the line at 7, 710 to 725 pace or whatever. But as you go, right, 
through this and you see the pattern, then you can kind of build confidence um, in the value of the schedule and, and not the workout. Because you can design workouts that are very intensive and leave you feeling like you've accomplished something, but they will also leave you ultimately unable to really do the kind of training that's necessary for you to improve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Black Cats Run. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can check out some of our other episodes. You can also check out our Instagram page at Black Cats Run. We have some different graphs and visuals related to a variety of different episodes and concepts on there that people can take a look at to help better illustrate the kind of thinking and maybe you know, paradigm shifting in a way that we're trying to encourage people to at least consider in terms of how you think about and understand sport and how you try to train. We'll catch you next time.